Because without it, we're hopeless. And without it, we resort to violence. And without it, we resort to greed. And without it, we resort to coercion. And we need Jesus. And we need Him. And we need the Gospel. And we need the good news. Because without it, it's all bad news. It really is. Good, the good news makes any news have the potential to be good, to be transformed. So I was, we're going to continue in our series on the, on the gospel and the good news. And we were going to talk about the gospel in one word. And I'll let you guess the one word. We were going to talk about the gospel in one word, but I decided to change that in light of just, I think, what's happening in our country and what kind of comes up in clusters, it seems. Every few months, we're reminded that all is not well that we think it was done with slavery and and the Civil War and the Emancipation Emancipation Proclamation. We thought it was done with the Civil Rights Act. We thought it was all done and that we all get along. And to be honest with you, I thought it did. I thought it was all over as I grew up as a white, middle-class American. I thought, well, what, what racism, what division, what's wrong? I don't know that there's anything wrong. But I'm learning that there's much wrong. And uh, I feel like it's important for us as a community and a diverse community that, you know, Highland High School, 28 different languages are spoken. We live in the international district. We, our neighbors, and some of us, experience racism and discrimination and prejudice. We need to be aware and we need to know why the good news is good news in the midst of this difficult news, this news that the world is not as it should be, that there's division, that there's strife, that there's hatred, that there's violence and discrimination running rampant in the streets and also in the shadows, right, where we don't see it. And so I just, I want to um, give you a message that maybe some of you have heard me give before. It'll be a little bit different. But it's important for us to see how the good news, the gospel, changes and reimagines race, reimagines racial tensions. And I will readily admit, look at me, I'm a, I'm a white guy, like I said, a middle class white guy. And this is, so I speak from a place of humility, trying to understand the good news and what the Bible, what scripture, what Jesus has to say about coming together and being healed. And I think we need to hear this. And I've, got, I've consulted people, uh, friends of mine that come from different backgrounds on this and, and I've gotten their feedback, but it comes from my perspective. And part of what we want to grow in as a community is having multiple perspectives and want to learn from one another, want to learn from our different experiences. And uh, so I am open, please, as we talk about this, I'm open to just feedback and growing, and we, we need each other. So I recognized you kind of see how quickly hostility can grow in you and how you can grow to be a prejudiced, discriminating individual um, really quickly, even in the area of sports. So I was at Baylor, you, you know, for grad school for four years. I was in Waco, Texas, 
And Baylor had an awesome football team while I was there. They were in the top five most of the years I was there. They were in the running for a national championship. They were on the top four, kind of on the bubble to get into the national championship playoff. And so it was a really exciting time to be at Baylor for the football season. But I'm not a big sports guy. I enjoy it. I enjoy it. But I'm not like one of these guys that's like on my phone, ESPN.com, all day. But I kind of, it was hard not to get sucked into the hype. And so I was excited. I didn't, wasn't at the games much. I went to one or two games. But one time I was in Starbucks studying right before a game was about to happen. And, they, and Baylor was playing TCU. Now TCU, I didn't know this, is, a, is like a, a uh, what do they call it, arch rival of Baylor, the Baylor Bears. The horny frogs or horny toads, whatever they're called. Yeah, that's what we call them. Yeah, the horny toads. And the Baylor Bears, they don't get along, right? And so I'm in Starbucks. I don't really care. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, at best a fan from a, very, a great distance. But in walks the Starbucks before the game, TCU fans. They're wearing their purple jerseys, you know? They have the audacity to walk into a Waco, Texas Starbucks just feet away from Baylor Stadium and they're wearing their colors of purple frogs, right? And in my heart, like, like I will be honest with you, I, animosity leapt up. Like, I'm like, I don't like those people. And this is, like, they're just, they're people who like a different football team than I do. And that animosity jumps up. I'm like, wait, these are the enemy. They're cheaters. You know, and all this stuff, right, about TCU. And so, if that happens to a person who's not even into football, who's not even really a Baylor Bears fan, to an opposing team's fan, just because they're wearing a different set of colors, if that happens in my heart at that level, you can only imagine the level of deep-seated racism, discrimination, and prejudice that can be handed down over generations, right? Generational hatred or discrimination or dislike of a certain group of people based on certain characteristics, and you just say, these are other, I don't like them. My family doesn't like them. Our people are different than your people. You are other. And we demonize and we distance ourselves and we stereotype and hostility grows and division grows. And this is the state of our country, isn't it? We are our country that started with deep-seated division and it has only continued to grow. Now, there's been some progress, but let me tell you, in 1965, Martin Luther King Jr. said, he's famous for this quote, he said that 11 a.m. on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America, meaning when the church meets is the most segregated hour in America. So when I talk about this, let me back up a little bit, I'm not talking about everyone else's problem, everyone else's racism, everyone else's discrimination, everyone else's division. I want us to talk about the church, all right, and where we are at with this, because the church has a problem with this. And it was true in 1965 when Martin Luther King Jr. said it, and uh, 40 years later, in 2000, A group of sociologists, Emerson and Smith, they're Christian sociologists, they did a study, a nationwide study, and they found that in the church in America in the early 2000s, the church was 90% homogenous, meaning that in 
90% of our churches, we are the same color, same ethno, eth, ethnic background, same socioeconomic group, whatever. We tend to just hang out with each other, people that we like and we spend time with and we worship with. And so the church is 90% homogenous today of one color, monochromatic. Now, I love it that I look across here and I see some difference. And I think we're breaking that paradigm. And one of our values we're going to get to is the beautiful discomfort of diversity, right? We want, it's beautiful again, but uncomfortable to be diverse. And I think we need to live into that more. I've been convicted even over the last week. We need, we need to do better. But at least we're on the right track. We've got some, we've got some non-homogeneity. I don't know the percentages, but it's looking all right from here. So the issue and the problem in America is great. It is deep. It is systemic. It is generational. And we all have these issues ingrained in us. So here's the question. Is there hope? Is there hope? Is there a glimmer of light? Jabez said he wants to sit in the darkness for a little bit, and I I agree. I don't want to move too quickly, but I believe that we we have some resources in the gospel. I believe the answer is yes. I believe the good news is that yes, there is hope, and there is a path forward to this. The gospel reimagines racism, it reimagines race, it reimagines our discrimination and our prejudice. And so I want to take us to a passage in Revelation, and I can, um, I've got it on the screen, I don't know if you'll be able to read it, but if you can't, get it on your phone, get it on your, in your Bible, old school paper Bible, I love it, we should all have one, I need to get a set for us, but here's the deal, Revelation 7, 9, last book of the Bible, chapter 7, verse 9, if you want to see what God's hope is for the world and the good news, where it's all heading, and even where it is now. See, heaven isn't so much a future destination, but an alternate reality, okay? So that even, it's as if it's a thin space between where we are and where heaven is, like another dimension, if you will. I'm not going to get all complicated here, but it's like if you could peel back, if you could just kind of peel whatever's in front of us back and look, you might see heaven. You might see the throne room of heaven. You might see God's heart for the world. And this is, my, this is one of the things you would see in Revelation 7. This is a vision of heaven. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. I want you to use your imaginations here. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know, don't ask me. 
He said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now this is an incredible, an incredible, an incredible passage. It's a credible picture of what God's heart for the world is and what heaven is and what God's will for the world is. What do you have? This multitudes of people, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people surrounding the throne of God. And it's this beautiful cacophony of sound. It's this beautiful mixture of voices and languages and cultures proclaiming the worth and the glory and the majesty of God. This is what we pray for, right? When we say, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is one of the things we're praying for, is this beautiful multitude of thousands of people from different, all over the, from all over the globe. Look who's there, right? Who is there? It's not 90% homogenous. I'll tell you that right now. It's every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne of God. A couple of observations here. First, if we look at God's will for the world, the end, where, he's, where it's all heading, His heavenly will, you see that ethnicity, culture, language, and identity is maintained. It's not blurred over. It's not whitewashed. It's not a melting pot. There's distinction here. Look at God, hear this please. God is not colorblind. God is not colorblind, all right? And neither should we be. See, I used to say, because I was very educated and smart, say, well, I don't see color. I see human beings, I see a person. But I have learned. And I hear people say that, and they're mostly white people, like me, who say that. But I've learned that if you can't see color, you can't see disparity. If you can't see color, you can't see disparity. If you can't see color, you can't see inequality. If you can't see color, you can't see injustice. But you also, if you can't see color, you can't see beauty. If you can't see color, you can't see uniqueness. If you can't see difference, you can't see the strength of the many different multifaceted diversity of the world that God has made. So what we're after here is a diversity that acknowledges and maintains distinction while eliminating disparity. Does that make sense? We want a worship and we want a people and we want a society that has diversity with distinction and without disparity, without inequality. This is what we're after. We need to recognize our difference. See, the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus doesn't blur the lines of culture and ethnicity and language. It makes it more brilliant. It amplifies the distinction. The robes in Revelation, in verse 14, they are bleached in the blood of Jesus, right? They're bleached white, but people's skin is not bleached white. The robes are bleached white. What, 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 what Jesus, the blood of Jesus does 
is it brings to its full and intended brilliance the difference that he has created. It's like, it, it's like it, it amplifies the distinction. It highlights the beauty. It highlights the strength. And it highlights the uniqueness of each and every culture and each and every ethnicity and each and every person. So that's what we're looking at. The throne room of God, God's will and God's heart for the world is a people coming together with distinction, without disparity, worshiping with one voice, the creator and king of the universe. So how do we get there? What makes this possible? I want to jump into Ephesians really quick. Ephesians 2 and 3. If you look that up, I don't have that on the screen at all. And I left my Bible back there, but I've got a handy iPhone here. Technology can be useful. We're going to look up Ephesians 2. Start in verse 11. And this is what makes this possible. We just looked at the throne room of God, God's heavenly will, and we will see what makes this possible. And it has something to do with the good news of Jesus, made possible in Jesus. Are you there yet? Because I'm not. All right, Ephesians 2, 11. Here we go. All right, we're going to walk through this fairly quickly. Therefore, remember that at one time, he's writing to the Ephesians, remember at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What's he saying? He's saying, look, remember you were Gentiles, i.e. you were not a part of the chosen people of God of Israel. You were outsiders. You were the marginalized. You were the discriminated against. You were the ones outside of God's, uh, of God's family. But you, no, well not yet, not yet. You were the outsiders. Gentiles. Now raise your hand if you're Gentile. Anyone, if you're not Jewish, then raise your hand. Maybe there's, Sinai is Jewish. Everyone who's, if you're not sleeping or Jewish, raise your hand. Now this is good. It's a wake, a wake up check. Good. All right, good. All right, cool. All right, so. You were at once hostile. You were at once separated from the love of Christ, from the good news from the family of God. You need to recognize that. But verse 13, and I love it. Someone did a sermon series called The Big Butts of the Bible. Here's a big butt of the, in the Bible. All right, Verse 13, But now, in Christ, you were separated. You were alienated. You were outside the family of God. But now, in who? Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is intimate family language. Those you have been brought near. We pray a prayer as a community. One of our prayers is, I hope you're praying them. There's some in the back. You'll get to pray this prayer if you pray them. It says, Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard 
cold wood of the cross so that all might be in the embrace of your loving arms. Something like that. But now in Christ, you were alienated, but now you've been embraced. You've been brought near. You've been brought into the family and into the love of God. Verses 14 through 18. For He Himself, we're talking about Jesus. For He Himself is our peace. Do we need peace in the world? He is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man, one new humanity in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. But through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What are we? We talked about it on Wednesday. We are members of the household of God, the oikos, the extended family of God made new in Jesus. Jesus comes and He redefines family. He redefines who it is, what it means to be blood-related. And we are the church, the household, who are united by not our blood, but by Jesus' blood, made one, made one family. Here's what one person, a scholar said about... um, Oh, man. That's not right. Never mind. I don't have it. We'll get there. Here it is. The household of God, listen, the household of God is an image that beckons the community of Jesus Christ to be a place of convergence for the great rivers of humanity, people of all cultures, races, languages, nations, tribes, and clans reside in the household of faith. So what is the church supposed to be when it's reflecting the reign and rule of God? We're supposed to be this great convergence of cultures and ethnicities and people. That's what we're supposed to be. That's, it should not be 90% homogenous. It should be the, the beacon and the example of what racial reconciliation and diversity with distinction without disparity looks like. Right? The church should be the great convergence of cultures because we're all united in the household of God through Jesus Christ, through His blood, through His death, through His resurrection. I'm going to skip ahead here to some practices. What are some practices that we need to continue to live into? And this is, a lot of our community is based on this stuff, these practices. And this is why we get together every Wednesday. This is why we get together on Sundays. This is why we try to view church as a rhythm of life rather than a two-hour event on Sunday morning. Because we need to practice and to live into the gospel as a community. So we need to practice the discipline of incarnational listening. Now, I know that's a big word. What does incarnation mean? It means it's what Jesus did. He took on flesh and He dwelt among us. He took on flesh and He moved into the neighborhood. He took on flesh and He moved next door and He took on our vulnerability. 
He took on our weakness. He understands our need. He understands our pain. He understands every human emotion. He lived with and among us. We need to be a people that practice being present with those that are different than us. We need to practice being around people who are different from us. And we need to listen and hear. And I'm, I think I'm talking mostly to uh, people that look a little bit more like me. But it, might, it applies to all of us. Um, we have to practice being present with those who are different. And we need to hear their stories and we need to try to feel what they feel and enter into their experience without justifying or getting defensive, right? Because I think what we hear sometimes is when we hear, when I hear, when I, and I have heard this in the past in this way, like when you say, well, there's oppression and there's injustice and there's poverty and there's systemic issues, I, I have heard in the past, well, so then I didn't work hard for what I have? Or, you know, I, there's no racism, there's no injustice. What are you talking about? And I defend and I deflect because I, I I'm not really listening. What we need to do is listen alongside and experience people who are different from us and hear their experiences. So I need to hear Liz, my friend from Waco, um, an African-American single mother raising an African-American boy who's going to grow into an African-American man who she is afraid will be, um, will have a target on his back. I need to hear her pain and I need to hear her express that and I need to hear her fear around law enforcement even though I've never experienced a negative interaction with law enforcement but why, you know, I haven't and I need to hear and believe that her stories are true and that she's experienced that and that her fears are real and I need to see her with fear and trembling and tears as she describes what she did. She took her little, her young son to meet police officers so that she can, he can have a positive interaction but just afraid of what, this, what his future is. I need to hear that. I need to listen to it. And I don't need to defend it. And I don't need to go defend, you know, police officers and say blue lives matter, black lives matter, all lives matter. I need to hear what she's saying. And I need to hurt with her. That's what we need to do. I need to hear from my Latino and Latina brothers and sisters, right? Uh, The people I've worked with at East Central Ministries who during um, the election season... Um, just the boldness of people that had d- prejudice was just heightened. They exp- this was their experience. Again, I did not experience it. Cause no one's calling me names. But they would be in line at Walmart, right? And the people behind them would think, well, they can't understand English because obviously they're brown, I guess. I don't know. And they, say, they start saying, well, I wish they would go back to where they came from. Look at them. What are they doing here? And I need to hear the pain that that causes when they hear that. I need to hear the pain. So homogeneity, sameness, is killing the church. And it's killing our culture. And we need to be around people that are different. And I need to hear different perspectives. And so I know, and this can be difficult, right? And if you have... Experience, if you have experienced discrimination and prejudice and you are among 
you know, minority culture. I know this is, I acknowledge that this is a difficult thing. This is what I've understood as I've talked to my friends, especially when I was in school, right? Like you feel like you have to be the spokesperson for a whole group of people. And that's a burden that I know it's not fair to carry. I'm sorry. I don't, and maybe you can help us with that. Like how, how do we, how can we, how can we learn from you while you're not feeling like that? So, but we need, I need you. I need you to tell me. I need you to, uh, I need to hear your experiences. And this needs to be a community where it's safe to do that. And I want you to call me out when I say stupid stuff or I'm blind to certain things. And I, I want us to be willing to call each other out in love and submit to one another and to understand one another's experience. And it's going to be hard and we're going to hurt each other and we need to forgive each other. It's all rooted in Jesus and his gospel and his forgiveness for us. The next thing, I'm just going to skip to this. We need to embrace and regularly and practice the Lord's Supper together. And that's why we have it every week. All right? That's why we eat the Lord's Supper together. Each and every week we get together because it is in the Lord's Supper Supper, that we have the opportunity to declare the past and the future converging into the present. The work of Jesus, His death and resurrection on the cross, His life paid for our sins and for the sin of racism, and His resurrection who makes all things new and breaks down the wall of hostility between people. We need to bring that forward into the present and we need to bring the future back into the present and that future of all, every tribe, tongue, and nation proclaiming the worthy and worth and majesty of God in every tongue, in every culture. And we need to bring that together and that is brought together in the body and in the blood of Christ as we take it together and we remember that it is Christ's blood that unites us, not our blood. It's not family blood. It's not family ties. It's Jesus' blood and Jesus' ties that binds us together. Mirsaf Wolf says this, when... God sets out to embrace the enemy. The result is the cross. In receiving Christ's broken body and spilled blood, we, in a sense, receive all those whom Christ received by suffering. Christ, Jesus, has embraced you. And it took the cross. He embraced you. And He embraced me. He embraces His enemy. And when we receive His broken body and spilled blood, we are receiving all those who suffer. And we're even receiving our enemy. Christ's blood runs through our veins, right? In Revelation 7, again, in verse 14, they were washed in what? Their robes are washed in the blood of the Lamb. So under the Gospel, 
A diverse multitude of nations and languages can enter the family of God and they're brought near by the blood of Christ. So that's the hope of the world. This is the hope of the world. And every time we gather together, we say there's hope. And every time we take communion, we, it's the grotesque beauty of the cross. There is hope, and it required great sacrifice to attain it. But there is hope, and there's a future, and there is renewal, and there's new creation, and there's reconciliation, and there is a path forward. And that God will make all wrong things right. He will reverse the curse of sin and death. He will bring every tribe, tongue, and people together. So we proclaim that hope as we partake it each and every day. One last practice. We need prayer. We need persevering prayer. The last verse of Ephesians 3 is a really popular verse. And I want to read that real quick. 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 14, verse 14, and we'll end with this. Paul says, and he's just talked about the mystery of the gospel which unites all people together. It breaks down the hostility. It brings peace. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family... Every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend. Now here's the famous part. May have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let me ask you this. What if, in context, this prayer is a prayer that the height and breadth and depth and width of Christ's love would be made known What if this prayer is a prayer that prays and cries out to God that everyone from every tribe and from every tongue and from every socioeconomic background would be embraced by the love of Christ? What if it's a prayer that says, may everyone understand and know and come within the reach and the embrace of Jesus? The word for manifold wisdom of God, right? This is in Ephesians 4. I, I, I skipped it, but I want to bring it here. We are to reflect. The church reflects the manifold wisdom of God. You heard that verse? You know the word manifold is? This is in the same section of Scripture here. Manifold, literally translated, means multicolored. The multicolored wisdom of God. The church reflects to the powers and principalities, to the earth and to all that is in it, the multicolored wisdom of God. The wisdom of the cross, the good news of the gospel, is that every person can be included in the family of God. And we as the church are to proclaim the manifold, the multicolored wisdom of God made possible in Jesus Christ and His blood. That's what we're called to do.
Let's pray. Lord, I pray, God, that you would help us to know what is the height and the breadth and the width and the, and the, the length, the magnitude, the all-embracing power of the love that is available in Christ. Lord, I pray that we would not hold back. And I pray that you would expose our prejudices, our discriminations, God, our stereotypes. We all have them. I have them, Lord. And I pray that every time, Lord, you would just expose it all. And even though it would be painful, that you would teach me, Lord, how to see people through the lens of the cross and through the lens of the resurrection and through the lens of your reconciliation and the work that you are doing, God. And I pray, Father, and I pray for those among us who are hurting, who have hurt because of racial hostility and discrimination and have felt the weight of systemic injustice and have felt the weight of personal discrimination and prejudice. Lord, I pray for healing and I pray for grace to love and, and to, to be an ambassador of reconciliation, even though it hurts. And Lord, I pray that we would learn from one another how to do this and help, it, help each other in this. In Jesus' name, Lord, I pray. Amen. Amen, amen. Please continue to worship. And we eat, we are going to eat together. You're going to share in the Lord's Supper together. And this is the last week, but I'm leaving <laughs> um, to go and be with... Uh, Outlet Believer Center to help a friend out. But please stand and worship together and